The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. I've been introduced as a musicologist. I don't really know what that is, but I, I love it. You know, it's, <laughs> um, it's, it's really wonderful. I love music, and so if you put ology to it, maybe that means um, that I, I like to study it, which is true. In uh, September, just last month, a couple weeks ago, in the city of Lyon, which is in France, there was the biennial... Um, dance festival. And uh, what kind of dance do you think they featured there? Well, they had some classical dance, they had some ballet and so forth, but the most popular dance of all was breakdancing. And um, this says two things. One is that obviously that genre has become just universal. It's all over the planet, as, as John Leonard said in his wonderful address. But the way the French do it it had to be a, this kind of high cultural thing. So they featured it as, as just something fascinating and beautiful to behold. And uh, they had some really talented kind of gymnasts doing it. And, uh, and you know, that's fine. But I'm not sure that they were fully going into what the background of, of breakdancing is. And um, I'd like to do a little bit of that with you as a musicologist. Um, go into the background here. And um, the title of this uh, little talk here is Wrapping the Gospel, Lessons in Contextualizing the Message. Uh, now, now, John, John uh, said it so well, and, and so some of this is going to be like a footnote to his marvelous talk. But um, let me begin by asking the question, how does the message, which is eternal rightly, without losing any of its vigor and truth, become accommodated or put into the context of a culture so that it can speak into that culture. And I'd like to suggest to you that the answer is that we're not asking the question the right way. Because the culture is not some alien stuff out there that people live in or with, but the culture is actually part of the unfolding of human history, which the Lord God has ordained. And it's part, of course there's the fall and there's sin, which has, has complicated and compromised things. But the, the unfolding of culture is actually part of God's plan, right back to Genesis 1. You remember he said after he'd made Mankind, after his image, he said to multiply and go out and have dominion and, um, and uh, be blessed. And uh, that is sometimes known as the cultural mandate. And so the question is not how does some abstract truth that we call the gospel penetrate into some strange alien 
reality called culture. The problem is, how does that unfolding history become reached by a God whose grace is the utter contradiction of what's gone wrong with that culture? Right? How does the, 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 it's not that culture is bad in itself or is some sort of like glass ceiling. But, but culture is, that, is the place where we live. And um, I've only gotten used to doing this in the last uh, few years. But um, I'm genuinely thankful to be living in the culture of the 21st century. Because I think God has put that here for me to live in. It's not this alien thing that I've got to try to struggle with. But it's, it's where God wants me. And that goes even for some of the harder parts of culture. That goes for rap culture. Now, as uh, John alluded to, one of the oldest questions in missions is, how do you contextualize the message? Paul puts it that he wants to become all things to all people so that by all means he can win some. And um, to put it in a slightly different way, we're asking, how can we so understand and be so compassionate with the culture of our time that we can actually live and move and have our being in it in order to communicate the good news to the people who are in it but caught in the sinful web of it? So how can, how can we do that? And um, at the outset, uh, we might think, well, rap is just the problem that we need to solve. Um, it is angry, it is worldly, it is hostile. And so we might think our problem is getting through just to a culture which is angry. But I think the problem is a lot more subtle than that. It's a lot deeper than that. Rap isn't about anger only, but rap comes with a long legacy It may have seemed to have emerged just in the early 90s or late 80s, but actually it has a long history. And I believe that exploring that history is going to help us to be able to interface with it. And I think we'll find some surprises. We'll learn how amazingly coordinate with rap culture are some parts of the gospel and even the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So, to put it in the way of this talk, how does the gospel rap? All right? Let's do some history. I would like to spend a few minutes going back into African-American history with you. Now, I know that a lot of people in the room here don't have an African-American background, but there are universals here, I think, in every culture. And rap did come out of an African-American culture. And so it's appropriate, as we try to understand its dynamics, to look back a little bit into the history of it. And let me start with this question. What makes Bill Cosby, Chris Rock, Eddie Murphy, Slappy White, and another number of others, who are so different in their approaches to comedy, what makes them yet black comedians? Or let me ask another question. Why do black musicians 
people like Louis Armstrong or Dizzy Gillespie or so many others who seem to combine various antics and clowning and entertaining postures with depth have so much sympathy? Why, do they, why are they so attractive? How can you combine antics with serious artistry? Why do people like O.J. Simpson and Tupac draw so much general sympathy, whatever they might have done or not done? Now, one of the reasons, I believe, is that there is a, a history which has given African Americans a certain attitude. And this history goes back into slavery. At one level, many African Americans are survivors from an oppressed group. You find recognition in the entertainment world and the sports world and so forth. And where you find that what you're doing well pleases the crowd and you learn to survive with it. But there's a lot more to it than survival. There's something profoundly creative and recreative about African-American culture. One of the things that um, has fascinated me is to look at the phenomenon of the way oppression when there's the gospel, brings about not just survival, but actually creativity. Go back now almost a couple of centuries to the city of Louisiana, to the city of New Orleans in the state of Louisiana. And go back to a place that used to be called Congo Square. Now, um, Congo Square, it's still there. Now it's called Louis Armstrong National Park. And... uh, Congo Square is a place where mostly African Americans, some slaves, some free, would go for recreation, would go for release and singing and fellowship. And uh, sometimes the singing and the fellowship got pretty loud. Uh, It's called Congo Square because they played the Congo drums. And um, a lot of carrying on and a lot of rhythm there. Well, in the history of the way some of the white governments in the states and in the cities tried to control what they considered to be an inferior group of people. There was the issuing of what are called black codes. These were a series of laws. You have them in Virginia, South Carolina. You had them in Louisiana, which curtailed the activity of ethnic minorities, particularly African-Americans. And uh, some of these codes were just silly. Um, some of them were very, very pernicious. Like, you know, you had to take different kinds of transportation or you couldn't uh, stay in the same place. Or... And um, some of them were just plain fearful. And in Congo Square, in the early 19th century, a number of these black codes came in to control the carrying on. And in the 1850s, a particularly uncomfortable and sad black code was issued that said, you can't dance in the Congo Square anymore. And the reason is that the town fathers of the city of New Orleans had learned from some book that dancing incites to riot. And so um, 
in order not to have riot, they, they, they issued a code against, against dancing. Now, you know what happened, of course. Um, this has been reported in a number of, of chronicles. The black leadership came to the town fathers and basically said, okay, we have to do this. This is your law. But by the way, just so we'll know what it is we're not supposed to do, could you define dancing for us? And um, they, uh, they went into committee. <laughs> you love it? I mean, I'm not making this up. Um, and four or five days of, of, I would love to have been there, they were in a committee and they debated what, what dance was. And they emerged after this long study with this wonderful definition. Um, dance is when you cross your legs. Okay? If ever you cross your legs, that's dancing. That's what it is. So the black leadership said, thank you, that we, we sure won't do that anymore. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and they went back and told their people. Um, and um, so they, what they did is they... they it created all these wonderful non-dance movements. Um, one of them was called the ring shout, where you would have a series of concentric circles and you would, you would move like, you know, like this, but you, you wouldn't cross your feet because that's dancing. You can't dance. But it, would, it, it sure looked like dance to anybody else. And it actually gave the opportunity to create some marvelous swinging movements um, that, were, that were very subtle, and it fed into some of the rhythms of, of jazz later on. Now, this happened a lot. Um, it's known by musicologists, I really am one, um, as uh, suppression and reemergence. Okay, it's a, it's a very sophisticated word for what parents know when kids are told not to do something, you know, and they find a, a, a creative way to kind of not do it, but they're really doing it anyway. Um, and... Uh, and, but it's, it's in, the, in the history of African-American people, it became a pattern. Um, Duke Ellington accepted the otherwise humiliating genre that was attributed to him of jungle music in places like the Cotton Club in the early 20s, I mean the late 20s. But what he did is in the guise of this jungle music, which white people were supposed to like, um, he developed extraordinary artistic skills by experimentation because he could get away with anything. It was called jungle music after all, so let's try things out. And he came out with these amazing combinations. I mean, people just were awestruck by the, the, the combinations of instruments that he would put together, which nobody had ever thought of before, even in classical music. And, um, and it, it was a, a pattern of suppression and reemergence. Now, there's a tradition that comes out of this of the trickster. There's a debate as to whether the trickster comes from West Africa or whether the trickster comes from America. But one of the defining characteristics of the trickster is being bad. Now, you know the expression, right? When we, that comes out of African-American culture. Um, at the end of Wynton Marsalis' wonderful uh, television pre presentation on on Louis Armstrong, he, his last sentence, after telling us all these wonderful things about, about Pops, Armstrong, he says, I want you to remember one thing. He was bad. He was really bad, okay? And that's the, that's the, that's the highest compliment that you could pay to a, a musician. Now, on the surface, the trickster was just somebody who was so clever he could get away with things that you're not supposed to get away with. He would defy his oppressors with unruly behavior. Um, and he became a hero. The blues singer Will Shade, 
made it sound really attractive, and he sang about packing up his suitcase and starting off to the train. Hey, black folks, that's evil. Do anything you want to do. But underneath the surface, there's something good about being bad. It's not meaning a bad person in the traditional sense. The goal isn't to destroy or even to be deviant, but the goal is to handle the oppression in a way that isn't just passive, but that has subversion, resistance, and creativity to it. Now, let me introduce you to a character um, who was bad. By the 1890s, which is the Reconstruction era, Um, This bad man was a hero that inspired a lot of people in the African-American community. Um, He could trick the sheriff and outwit the judge. He could manipulate his adjudicators and defy their laws. And singers and storytellers thought the trickster even had kind of supernatural gifts. He was the conjurer of freedom. Railroad Bill was a character who seduced another man's wife. And minstrels who sang about him would often personalize the story, make it something about themselves or, or, their, or their own life. And they'd have Railroad Bill try to steal away their own woman. Will Bennett sang a blues about Bill seducing his wife. But then he went on to justify going around on a rampage and having revenge against anyone that ever betrayed him. The singer outtricks the trickster. Now, this is not Christian behavior. I want, I want you to know that about, at Westminster we don't teach this stuff. Um, but um, think a bit about it as as complex. Um, This is not the celebration of evil or something like that. This This is a figure who is able to handle problems. He's an improviser. Improvisation is is at the heart of African American culture. And uh, out tricking the trickster is something that even our Lord Jesus did in a certain way, didn't he? People tried to trick him with their questions. They tried to subvert him with their um, conundrums. And, you know, he would do things like whip a coin out of his pocket and say, whose face is on this coin? Now, that's a, that's a bad trickster tactic. <laughs> Jesus was bad. <laughs> you don't hear that from the pulpit very often, right? Um, but um, I, would, I would submit to you that um, in much of African-American culture, what is developed here is the idea of the good subversive or of good subversion. Hip-hop culture, much of it, goes back to subversion. You could even say that hip-hop culture started as a subversive lifestyle. Now, you know what happens um, after Madison Avenue gets hold of you and record companies and so forth. Then uh, you become the best-dressed, most powerful, you know, rich, and you start to oppress other people. 
That's, that's the way it is in, in human nature. Um, so often, I mean, the, the most radical revolutionary movements end up being their own oppressors. Didn't that happen to various phases of rock and roll history? Um, I mean, you, ju- you just think of some of the, the most revolutionary types of, 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 of rock and roll that were, were supposed to be never commercialized. Um, well, they've become commercial. They get into dress styles and, 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 and things. And that, that happened, to, that happened to, uh, to rap. But nevertheless, there's this uh, the good side of subversion. If you're trying to win somebody's trust, what do you do? You don't come to them predictably. I, I believe a lot of evangelical Christians are far too predictable. My brother was talking about apologetics a moment ago, and uh, he was talking about the old-fashioned kind where you, you give reasons. Of course, you've got to give reasons. That's what apologetics is. But it can become so predictable. You know, I know where you're going with this. I've, you know, um, it doesn't speak to my heart. It's very brilliant and it's nice, but it doesn't speak to my heart. What we've got to do is develop a more subversive lifestyle where we keep people off balance. We're not so predictable. Because if you want to win somebody's trust in a fallen world, you have to come in the back door, not in the front door. That's what Jesus did all the time. Um, he, uh, he almost never answered a question exactly as it was framed. Um, he almost never just told a doctrine straight because he said, well, look, this is what it says. He always found a surprising way uh, to put things. I mean, just here's an example. Uh, it's always struck me. You remember there was a group called uh, the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection. And they were coming out, and, you know, about this problem. There's a man, he's married seven times, you know. Well, who, who's his wife in the resurrection? So th- there goes your resurrection theory, right? And, and Jesus, in, instead of answering him, you know, by saying, Maybe his first wife or his last wife or no wives or, you know, whatever. He eventually came around to saying there isn't marriage in heaven. He said, um, you don't really know your Bibles. Um, you don't remember the story of the burning bush. Now, I'd like to have been there because I'd like to have seen the look on the Sadducees' faces, you know. We're asking you about the resurrection, okay? And uh, now you start with the burning bush, you know, uh, what is this? You know, uh, we went to Sunday school and we never, never studied the burning bush in connection with the resurrection. And, you know, you remember how he goes step by step. He says, well, um, the God who names himself in that burning bush is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, would God name himself after dead people? And they didn't have any answer. See how Jesus just kept them off balance. And I think the, the best thing about breakdancing and rap culture is that um, this is about being off balance. It's, it's uh, you know, you're not supposed to dance like that. You're not supposed to sing like that or recite like that, but they do. Now, the gospel um, comes to people in different contexts and in different ways, but um, I would submit to you that one of the greatest examples of a good subversive was uh, Jesus Christ himself. To be sure, he was sinless. And when African Americans learned about Jesus and saw him as a redeemer, a defender, 
a friend, but they saw someone who was willing to become a slave for the sake of liberating their people. Um, this is our man, they understood, because he became a slave to set us free. He was willing to become one of us, tainted with our misery and dirt. Although rich, for your sake he became poor, that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Now, Jesus did this in a number of ways. I've already talked to you about uh, how he kept people off balance with with his uh, approach to uh, doctrine and so forth. But he was the master telling, the master storyteller. He was the great storyteller. And I believe a lot of us have lost that art. Many times our speeches, our sermons are sort of prosaic. Um, here's what the passage says. Here's what it's about. It's about and now here's some application. Um, some people have a, a remarkable ability to turn a a story in the Bible into just straight doctrine. And don't get me wrong. Stories have doctrine. They really do. Uh, But um, what about the story itself? One of my colleagues who teaches here, Al Groves, um, he he does this little exercise with uh, his classes. He says, take out a pen and, and a piece of paper and rewrite Psalm 23, without any images. Take away all the images and write it out. I mean, it would take like five or six pages. But you can't say, you know, the Lord's my shepherd. You can't stay, say still waters or pastures or, you know, banquet tables. Um, just say what the doctrine is. Well, two things happen when you do that. First of all, it ruins the, the psalm. And... Uh, <laughs> And it makes it so flat and boring. Um, and even though it's true, you know, it's boring truth. And, um, and the second thing it does, it, it, it tells you something, which I think is very deep. And that is, it is true that stories and images contain doctrines. But isn't it also true that doctrine is a story? Isn't it true that the truth is a story? It's... It's not that there's this truth up here and then we've got to figure out story ways to get it across because, you know, we don't do so well with abstractions. No, truth is actually a story. Now, I don't mean a story in the sense of it's made up. I think it's a true story. In the sense, you know, like we often say, what's the story here? And what we need is the facts. But, um, you know, God himself is not some ab- abstract being who just exists. Uh, the, the Greeks and then the medievals had these wonderful proofs called like the cosmological argument, where after a long series of, of d- discourses, they would come to the conclusion, God is the unmoved mover, or God is the first cause. Well, I've, I've never seen those phrases used in the Bible. Um, you know, God's a person. He has a name. He contains stories because he is the story. He's the true story. He's what it's about. And no wonder Jesus, who is the Word, who came to earth, told stories. And um, when uh, somebody wanted to know who's my neighbor, he didn't give a doctrine. He talked about the Good Samaritan. Turn the question around. You should have been asking, to whom are you the neighbor? It's to anybody who's in need. 
And then, you know, somebody once said that the parables are like a time bomb or maybe like one of those uh, delayed action capsules that you take when you're taking medicine over a period of time. Um, the first part works on you pretty intensely, and then over the days and weeks, it got, it's got to work on you more. You know, when those people heard about the Good Samaritan, they probably didn't feel the full force of it until a little later. You know, it would have taken a while, but then they would have said, you know, I think we're supposed to be the priest and the lawyer. Uh, we're not the good guys, you know. And uh, why did he talk about Samaritans? We hate those guys. I see. We're not supposed to hate people like that. And then, you know, if they really went long enough, they would, say, they would see that Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan. He's the hated outsider who doesn't ask any questions but gives up everything for the sake of this victim, pays for his bed, um, gets him out of, 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 of his trouble. And um, Now, do we not have in Jesus a good or a bad rap singer? Um, Jesus, the sweet singer of Israel, as he's called, who does lead the congregation in song, does he not sing in a rap mode? Because he has come to trouble the waters. He's come to subvert and to keep us off balance, but tell a story that is true. Let me illustrate this in another area. Um, the truth about the blues and rap. I have a friend who lives in uh, Memphis named Booker T. Lowry, wonderful jazz, jazz and blues musician. And he has a calling card. He says, Booker T. Lowry, I am the truth about the blues. Okay? Um, what he's saying is that you don't just have the blues, you are the blues. You, you don't just get blue, you live through them. And I believe the same thing is true of rap music. Ralph Ellison famously talked about how we sing the blues to keep the painful details of a brutal experience alive. It's a form, the blues. It's an autobiographical chronicle of personal catastrophe expressed lyrically. The blues is a lyric. Now, we, we, sometimes when we talk about lyrics, we're talking about the words. But lyric here means a combination of music and words that, that actually sings a story. It's, it's a beautiful telling of truth. And um, this catastrophe about the blues, however, often has a redemptive side. Now, many Christians don't think of the blues as particularly Christian music. And indeed, often the, the blues grew up in a parallel universe next to the church. But I believe that there's a symbiotic relationship between the blues and the spirituals, between blues and church music. Robert Johnson, I'm going to give you three examples. The first is Robert Johnson, kind of a mythical figure. He was real, but it's hard to tell how much about him was made up and invented, and how much of it's really true. We only have a few recordings of him. Um, you, can, you can put the complete Robert Johnson on, on just two CDs. But it's beautiful, powerful blues. He plays the guitar so well that some people said he had the devil in him, enabling him to play that. And um, 
He kept moving around in order to stave off the inevitable payoff of his devilish life, which was death. He tells his own story in Hellhound on My Trail. He died mysteriously at the age of 36. Legend has it that he was poisoned by a jealous husband. We don't know. The story is unclear. But um, what emerges from this story is that he was able to tell the truth in love. He was able to, to look at evil in the face and say, this is evil, but not in an angry, not in a resentful or bitter way. In a lament-like way, yes. In a tragic way, yes. In a way that's angry at injustice, yes. But not in a kind of um, purely vituperative way. He told the truth in musical love, just like Jesus did. Or take a second figure, the fascinating Stago Lee, or Stacker Lee. He has a, he has a, a number of names. Um, in the nineteen uh, in the in the late eighteen uh, nineties, um, this uh, character uh, whose name was Stago Lee. Uh, apparently came into a bar. Um, his name may have been Stack Lee. And um, he was uh, a pimp. He was one of the town's exotic pimps. They were known as the Max. So he was dressed to the hilt with a red vest and a dove-colored spats over his shoes. And he went over to have a drink and to have a laugh uh, with a fellow named... Um, with, with, with another fellow named Billy. And um, a little politics came, and they started to argue, and then the arguing turned to fisticuffs, and they got into blows, and Billy's hat was hurt. It fell to the ground, and it was stomped on. And uh, so Billy said, look, uh, this is my best... Uh, this is my best uh, Stetson. Give it back. And uh, he wouldn't. And so uh, he shot him. And um, now, is this a model of wonderful, um, heroic cleverness? No, of course not. But, uh, and, and Stack Lee Shelton was condemned to serve 25 years in a state penitentiary, and he died um, in, in that penitentiary. But people loved him because he was clever. He dared to take vengeance on somebody who thought he owed him something. Now, the significance of this myth is that this this man was considered a trickster. He was bad. He was able to out-trick his oppressors. And the fascinating thing is that this bar was in the city of St. Louis. And um, now, I didn't plan this because tonight is the, the debate. Um, I really didn't. Uh, but St. Louis, in, 19, in 1896, hosted the Republican National Convention. And um, this was the party of Lincoln. But uh, by this time, blacks felt betrayed by the Republicans for various reasons. And um, this didn't help. They had made a deal with the restaurants of the city to the effect that if, if the convention were held in St. Louis, then 
the whites had to allow black patrons into, to eat their meals in their, in their establishments. And so thinking that that would really help get the convention here and pay for it, the white patrons said, sure, that's fine. And then as soon as it happened, they didn't let them in. They reneged on their promises. A character named James Milton Turner, former ambassador to Liberia, then told his people that this is typical Republican. The, uh, these, these folks make promise, promises to use your votes, and then they turn against you. Um, and so, in the model of Stacker Lee or Stago Lee, they began to find ways to get back, find ways to rectify the injustice. Now, this could have happened to the Democrats. Uh, they weren't any better. It just happens that it was Republicans. So this is not a political statement here. But uh, this, this, this extraordinary character became this justification of, of vengeance. Now, Jesus wasn't like that. And yet, Jesus preached injustice. He talked about bringing the sword. He talked about the justice of God. Jesus was bad because he dared to denounce human sin. The third example is totally fascinating. A fellow named Thomas Rice, who was a white actor, who took part in the uh, black entertainment uh, medium and also in the white minstrelsy shows in, in, in a genre called blackface, which is terribly racist, um, but um, became intrigued with a runaway slave named Jim Crow. And Jim Crow was a trickster. Jim Crow was a person who was able, by racial subversion, to overcome injustice. Now, Thomas Rice wrote a bunch of plays to be played on the minstrel stage. Some of them were based on Shakespeare. His most famous one is called Othello, which is based on Othello. Othello, a burlesque opera. And here... Rice takes the classic Shakespeare play and changes the characters around. The Moor and Desdemona have a baby named Othello, whose face was painted black on one side and white on the other. But unlike the original Shakespeare tragedy, Othello ends happily for everyone because of the cleverness of being able to get around the race issue this way. Again, Jim Crow, Othello, these were folks that were heroes because of their clever subversiveness. Now, is there anything parallel to this in the gospel story? We can laugh at the trickster and then ignore him, and then he goes on doing his work. In the medieval times, the buffoon or the joker could say things to kings because he was supposed to be silly. And the king could laugh at him, but the things that he said usually were condemnatory of the king. In other words, the buffoon would get, in, get into the court, dress up in his silly costume, and he would entertain people, sing songs, 
And they were, they were directly aimed at the king's injustices. But they were so funny that everyone laughed. Now, the king laughed kind of because he had to. And then he had to go away and think about it. The trickster is an imperfect messiah. The true savior forges true equality because he atoned for our racism. Jesus Christ, the creator who made himself an outsider, who made himself a trickster, made himself a buffoon for us, comes and takes us off balance in order that we can embrace him. Humiliated like a slave, powerful like the conjurer, Jesus Christ is the author and finisher of liberating faith. And we learn something about his person and his work from people like Robert Johnson or Stagger Lee or Jim Crow. They were willing to be looked, like, looked upon as fools for the sake of what they believed. And what, then they were able to preach the truth. The blues and rap music have a strong element of condemnation of injustice. It's been called sinful music, the devil's music. But as many scholars point out, it has a huge redemptive element in it as well. You can't sing the blues unless you have the audacity to face evil, unless you have the strength to face it. The blues are very close to the spirituals because blues are preached. As a matter of fact, blues are based on a very simple kind of poetry, A-A-B. I hate to see that evening sun go down. Oh, I hate to see that evening sun go down, for my baby has done left this town. Powerful statement about lost love. And the parallelism is a direct analogy to Hebrew parallelism. Take the book of Ecclesiastes and read through the poetry there, and you'll find that it has the same structure. Sets up attention, then releases it, sets it up, and then releases it. There are books in the Bible that I like to call the blues books because they are singing the blues. Job was the biggest blues singer in the Old Testament. He sang the blues. And, um, and what's happening here is that African Americans, because they have embraced the gospel during slavery, were able to sing about hard times and lost love not because they were hopeless, but because they knew that only if you face the problem can you then transcend the problem. And I'd submit to you that Jesus was the greatest of all the blues singers because he wept over Jerusalem. He lamented over the sins of hypocrites. He felt for the women and children who were victims of social ostracism. And um, his approach to Lazarus' death at the tomb was to weep and to be angry. Isn't there something in this background that relates to hip-hop and protest? My point is that hip-hop is the heir, a distant heir to be sure, but the heir of these traditions. Now, a lot of secularization set in between the 19th century, the time of the blues, and the development of rap and hip-hop culture. This art form is quite distant from its 
Christian roots. A number of rap films describe prophetic figures who are just angry, who are not really prophets. But nevertheless, though there's violence, there's still that sense that there ought to be a better world. There ought to be a way to transcend this. There ought to be some sort of reconciliation. East Coast, West Coast, how how do we get together? The question, what would Jesus do, as John pointed out beautifully, is as relevant here as anywhere. Surely Jesus would both lead the protest and then bring the gospel answers. He would lead the the protest not in violent anger, but in holy anger at what's wrong with the world. But then he would bring what you don't see as much in much of rap culture. He would bring the vigorous, tough love of the gospel answer. One more component to this, and I'll I'll wrap it up. During the early 1960s, um, you might say Stago Lee became visible. The civil rights movement was underway. And gradually all the whites-only signs were removed from water fountains and hotel lobbies. Musicians like James Brown, Wilson Pickett, and others recorded versions of the story that, that reflected new power, new confidence, new authority among blacks, particularly black males. Cecil Brown reminds us of the forms of storytelling known as the toast. It's a classic black form of storytelling where the performer inhabits the hero's character and then tells the story, often without musical accompaniment. This is where rap comes from. It's an ancient form which came into its own in the 60s and enabled black men freely to assert themselves as bad men and tricksters. And... And the toast is often done in rhyming couples and poetry and, and, and so on. And, uh, uh, but the theme of the toast is, don't you know who I am? In mainstream contemporary hip-hop, the language is much more explicit and sometimes hard to listen to. Often, humor gives way to a mean spirit. And unfortunately, there's a lot of materialism. And... And yet, rap is a kind of toast narrative for our times. The violence and the rebellion in hip-hop culture reminds us of how scary the world is in which we live. And of course, it is a scary world. And we're not preaching violent subversion here. But we are preaching realism, the reality of sin. I believe that sin is one of the hardest doctrines to get across to our times. Uh, when you talk about sin, people think, you know, like you've been a bad Boy Scout or you've, um, you know, you've erred in some little way. Um, rap helps us to know that sin is perverse and violent and um, deep-rooted. As Cecil Brown points out, People who are left out of the American dream are understandably angry. And for them, life is a hustle. And uh, that's why a lot of rap 
is about hustling. There are fashion statements that represent the new max in which everyone and everything is manipulated to serve their purpose. But there's another story that's parallel to this. And that is that if you denounce evil for what it is, if you do it honestly, you can transcend it through the good news of the gospel. Because, as he says, the word is tricky. In other words, the trickster is, uh, is the great prophet because there is something tricky about the word. In Ralph Ellison's Juneteenth, one of the heroes asks this guy named Hickman, hey, are you a minister or a minstrel man? And he says, both, I'm afraid. And then he adds, but remember, I can be this because the word is tricky. Now, I believe that if we're going to try to reach hip-hop culture today, we have to be both a minister and a minstrel man. We have to learn to be God's called, chosen person to preach the gospel. But we've got to do it with minstrelsy, with lyric. We've got to do it in a way that tells the story right. So, there is a tremendous connection in the history of African American culture with Christian purposes. A connection that has gotten thinner and um, perhaps a little bit less vigorous. And yet it's still there. Why don't we revisit that? And why don't we embrace those elements that echo the truth and then turn them into a way to reach the hip-hop culture and redeem it? How is it that um, we keep thinking of the gospel as some abstract heavenly truth that's got to penetrate the impenetrable. No, if we, if we listen to the word correctly, we'll see that every, every human culture that we live in is an unfolding of God's purpose, but it's gone wrong. And the way to reach it is not to jump out of it, it's not to bring some abstraction into it, but is to grapple with it, to be in the trenches there with it, to embrace it, to be grateful for it, and then to redeem it. We ought to be able to say to people in the hip-hop culture, you know, you talk about injustice, you talk about sin, you don't talk about it violently enough. There is, there is a lot of denouncing of oppression. Is it really strong enough? Is it, does it really identify oppression for what it is? Or does it just have some groups that are oppressors, other groups that are innocent? Until we've taken that step, we can't really engage the gospel. But when we do, into that culture. But when we do, we see two things. First of all, we see that God loves us so much that he is willing to become one of us, to identify with our culture, and to lead us through it, to take on our anxiety our animosity, our rebelliousness, everything else, though without sin. Jesus is the friend of sinners without becoming a sinner. Jesus hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes, and he told them stories. I don't know if you remember 
there's so many different movies about the life of Christ, and a lot of them are quite deficient. One of them is, was by the director Zeffirelli. And um, one moment that I thought was pretty, pretty good, where does Jesus tell the parable of the prodigal son? He tells it to a group of sinners in a cave, like the old-fashioned bars of the day. And, um, and it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful connection. You know, we think of him telling this, this parable to this official audience of the Pharisees and the Gentiles sort of listening like in a classroom setting. And I, we don't know where he taught it, but Zephyrelli has him going into a cave with, with the social rejects of the time. And he's kind of reclining, and he says, you know, I was a man who had two sons, and uh, one of them asked his dad to give him everything before his time. And he went out and he ruined it and he spent it on the prostitutes. And uh, then he, he remembered what the father's house was like and came back and the father interrupted his repentance speech and, and, and loved him, put on the cloak. And, 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 and then there was this other brother who just didn't get it. He, uh, he didn't see that uh, compassion is what it's all about. And um, the father had the same love for him. Uh, the father entreated him, come on in. It's, this is your house. It's always been your house. But can't you rejoice at your lost brother who has been found? Now, Jesus, the rap singer par excellence, would say both the injustice and the love of God who forgives the sinner. He would both describe with realism eating in the pigsties and spending all your money on on lewd living and the brilliant, warm welcome of the Father. That's what's missing in a lot of hip-hop culture today is 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 the welcome, the warm love and welcome of the Father. And the reason it's missing is because the sin isn't clear enough. And second, back to our first question, how can we be all things to all people so that if by all means we may save some, I need to find redemptive analogies in the culture that surrounds me because it's a culture that is God's gift. Without giving in to worldliness or an unbiblical worldview, which permeates that culture, I can be like Jesus, draw from his example and his power and go into the culture that surrounds me, identify with it without giving into it, in order to lead people out of the sinful part of it. I, I can be like a victim. I can be like a beggar, but a victim who's been justified, a beggar who's found food. And talk to the people in every culture that God puts me before who are still victims and who are still beggars and say, look, I found the source of food. And I can say it to them not just prosaically by reading from doctrinal manuals or even quoting Bible verses, but I can keep them off balance. I can sing it to them in the lyric of the gospel. And that way, I can give them the gospel in a way that is bad.